Get Sleepy is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free and access weekly bonus episodes, extra long stories, and our entire back catalogue, you can try out Premium free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Get Sleepy, where we listen, we relax, and we get sleepy. As always, I'm your host, Thomas. Thank you for tuning in. Tonight's story sees us return to our series of adventures with Emma, who is researching lighthouses on the coast of Maine. It was written by Alicia and will be read by Abby. Seeing as today is International Women's Day, we felt it would be particularly fitting to join Emma by the fireside as she recalls stories of the heroic roles played by female lightkeepers. I hope you enjoy listening, and I want to wish you all a happy International Women's Day. Before we get to our story, I'd just like to tell you about Get Sleepy Premium. It's the best way to experience the show. As a premium member, you'll have access to over 500 full-length stories and meditations completely and entirely ad-free. You get 30% discount on Get Sleepy merchandise, and every Thursday, we release a brand new bonus episode exclusive to the premium feed. Like tomorrow, when we'll be visiting the sunny Algarve in Portugal for a relaxing trip in this beautiful part of the world. To hear that and everything else on Get Sleepy Premium, go to getsleepy.com support or just follow the link in the show notes. The first seven days are free, so you can make sure you're happy. That's getsleepy.com slash support. So now, let's make sure we're nice and settled, ready to listen to our story, and ease into a good night's sleep while we do. Make yourself nice and comfortable, adjusting your position if needed, and pulling up the covers so you're warm and cozy. Once you're comfortable, just begin to focus on your breathing, drawing the air gently into your lungs and softly letting it flow back out. If you're able to, just breathe in and out through your nose for the time being and really try to focus your attention there on the tip of your nose. Notice the temperature of the air as it travels in 
through the nostrils, and then sense how it's slightly warmer as you breathe it back out. Enjoy the coolness of the inhale, and the warmth and comfort of the exhale. Your remarkable body quickly and efficiently warms the air as it travels through your nose and into your lungs, and when you release it back out just a few seconds later, you can feel the product of that process as the air is warmer. So just continue to breathe slowly and steadily, noticing the transition of cool to warm. As you do, I'd like you to picture a small cottage tucked away on a large estate. The March weather is tempestuous, and you are ready for a cozy night by the fire. This is where our story begins. Emma pushed open the door of her little house and closed it firmly against the gusty wind. Wiping her rain boots on the mat, she balanced her dripping umbrella by the coat stand and gingerly removed her trench coat. Exhaling with relief, she pushed her wind-tossed hair from her face as she carried her small bag of groceries to the small kitchen counter. In like a lion, and out like a lamb, people say of the month of March. Mother Nature was certainly making good on that promise, she thought to herself. It was a perfect evening to batten down the hatches and cosy up indoors. She did not plan to brave the elements again tonight. Emma set her countertop toaster oven to preheat, then walked across her quaint sitting room to her bedroom. Once there, she gladly traded her wet clothes for her favourite flannel pyjamas. Sitting on the edge of her bed, She pulled on her fuzziest pair of warm socks and then happily spread her feet out in front of her. It felt so good to be rid of her shoes after such a long day. Emma sat in the warm glow of her bedroom lamp for a moment, surveying her space. She had been very fortunate these past few years to rent a small carriage house that was located next to a historic home. While she was on sabbatical, writing her book about Maine lighthouses, it had been the perfect refuge. Small, tidy and charming. Her landlady lived nearby in a grand old house on the same property. Renting the cottage had been an ideal situation for Emma. She had the advantages of a free-standing home, but without the bother of a lot of upkeep. Her bedroom was as sweet as could be. The carriage house had long ago been converted into a living space. 
It featured charming hardwood floors, a compact kitchen, and even a fireplace in the living room. Emma sometimes got lost in her thoughts, staring out the window at the kitchen counter, enjoying the view of the estate gardens. It was a bit like being a character in a fairy tale. Summoning the energy to get back up, Emma padded quietly across the floors and returned to the kitchen. She removed a container of takeout macaroni and cheese from the grocery bag, took off the plastic cover and stuck it in the toaster oven. She set it to cook slowly so it would have delicious toasty cheese on top. Proper mac and cheese was worth the wait. The fireplace had at some point been converted to a gas flame, so she had a cheerful blaze going at the flip of a switch. She crossed to her book bag, which was sitting by the coat rack. Opening it, she pulled out several notebooks and a pen. She had a bit of work to do this evening. International Women's Day was coming up. A friend of Emma's, who was a history teacher, had asked if she would come and give a talk to her high school class. Knowing that Emma was an expert on lighthouses, she had asked if there had been any women lighthouse keepers. Emma had thought this was an absolutely marvellous question and had immediately agreed to put together a presentation. Having spent so much of the year immersed in lighthouse history, she felt it was a brilliant opportunity to give the underappreciated female lightkeepers some recognition. The only problem she had was choosing which ones to talk about. There were so many options. Emma sat down in her favourite soft armchair and put her feet up on the upholstered ottoman. Opening up her notebook, she scanned the pages, surveying her research. Her first thought was that she really must begin with Catherine Walker, who had tirelessly tended Robin's reef light in New York Harbour. To fully understand Ms. Walker's determination, it was important to start at the beginning. Unlike many women who eventually tended their own light stations, Catherine Walker was not born into a lighthouse keeper's family. In fact, she had not even been born in the United States. In 1882, at the age of 37, she left Germany and immigrated to the United States with her young son Jacob. She initially found work as a cook at a boarding house in New Jersey, where she met a customer who was the Sandy Hook lightkeeper. His name was John Walker. John started teaching her English, and they became close. They married, at which time she moved to the lighthouse at Sandy Hook with him. So it was that Catherine Walker first learned the business of lighthouse keeping around the age of 40. Not long after, in 1885, Captain Walker was transferred to Robin's Reef Light, which was about a mile north of Staten Island. Robin's Reef Light station was quite isolated compared to Sandy Hook. Offshore, 
and built on a submerged ledge. The new lighthouse station at first depressed her. She told someone later in life, When I first came to Robin's Reef, the sight of the water, whichever way I looked, made me lonesome. I refused to unpack my trunks at first, but gradually, a little at a time, I unpacked. After a while, they were all unpacked, and I stayed on. Shortly after, she gave birth to a daughter named Mary, and the family of four settled in for the long haul. Emma paused and thought about Catherine's words. What impressed her so much about this woman was her determined stoicism. Widow, mother, immigrant, she had taken up what work was available, figured out what occupation made sense, and accepted even the isolation of this remote light station. Her resolve was strong, but her persistence continued to be tested. In 1890, John Walker passed away due to illness. Reportedly, his last words to his wife were, Mind the light, Kate. Emma smiled to herself. She thought Catherine sounded like the type who didn't need to be told to do such a thing. Of course, she took on his full responsibilities while raising her two children. Despite her experience at her position, her superiors did not feel a woman was up to the job. As she minded the light with perfect competency, they continued to search for a man to replace her. However, after several long years, in 1895, they admitted defeat. Catherine Walker was appointed the official keeper of Robin's Reef Light. Emma knew from her extensive research that minding the actual light at the station was just the beginning of any keeper's tasks. Catherine was once quoted as saying that the light was more difficult to care for than a family of children. Each day, she had to keep that light working and that also meant endless tasks, such as cleaning the reflectors and scraping ice in the winter. She had to turn on the fog siren in bad weather. If the siren was malfunctioning, she had to manually hit the fog bell until it was fixed. Of course, she was also a mother and the custodian of her family home. In 1906, she said in a New York Times article that she had as much housework to do as at the Waldorf Astoria, which Emma knew to be a very grand hotel in New York. Cooking, making beds and cleaning were daily tasks she had to manage alone. Even to obtain personal supplies or take her children to school on Staten Island, she had to row a mile on her own. It was hard for Emma to conceive of how difficult it was for such an isolated lightkeeper to complete everyday tasks that other people took for granted. Naturally, 
Catherine was also responsible for rescuing people who got into trouble near the lighthouse. She estimated that she saved at least 50 people from drowning during her tenure of 33 years. Ms. Walker retired in 1919, having seen Robin's reef light converted from kerosene lamps to oil vapor lamps to electricity. Near the end of her time there, she was living in the five-room light station with her son Jacob, who was assistant keeper, his wife, and her five grandchildren. Catherine spent her later years in a small cottage on Staten Island, where she kept a garden and was often seen observing Robin's reef light. When she passed away, the New York Post printed these words about her. In the sight of the city of towers and the torch of liberty lived this sturdy little woman, proud of her work and content in it, keeping her lamp alight and her windows clean so that New York Harbour might be safe for ships that pass in the night. Yes, Emma thought. She would definitely have to include Catherine Walker in her presentation. Setting down her papers, she rose from her comfy seat and returned to the toaster oven Pulling the little door open, she could see the contents bubbling slightly with a delicious, toasty layer on top. The mouth-watering scent of cheddar wafted across the counter. Her dinner was ready. She put the mac and cheese on a white plate, pulled a fork from the drawer, and carefully returned to her seat by the fire. Curling herself comfortably up in the chair, she set the plate down on the small table at her side. Steam rose enticingly from the dish. She would have to let that cool a little bit before eating it. Turning back to her notebook, she once again flipped through the papers in search of her next lighthouse hero. She stopped at Fanny Mae Salter and ran her finger across her notes. Unlike Catherine, Fanny Salter had experienced several lighthouse posts before becoming a head keeper. Prior to arriving at the Turkey Point Light in Maryland in 1922 with her husband, she had served with him as assistant keeper and no fewer than four lighthouses in the nearby state of Virginia. She was still just the assistant lightkeeper when her time at Turkey Point Light began. But her husband passed away in 1925 when she was 43 years old. As it happens, she was not much younger than Catherine Walker when she became the head keeper of a light immediately assuming his duties without an official appointment. Despite her 20 years of experience, however, that appointment did not happen easily. In contrast to Catherine Walker, 
Fanny was not challenged on her application because of the fact that she was a woman. In fact, three of the previous Turkey Point lightkeepers had actually been women. Instead, the civil service took issue with her age, saying she was too old to carry out the position. Luckily, Fanny was not a woman who could be easily deterred. She appealed the decision and was eventually appointed to the job by President Calvin Coolidge. In the process, she became the only female keeper ever to receive a presidential appointment. She received a salary of $1,140 per year, which comes out to about $18,000 in today's currency. Much like Catherine, Fanny had also managed a family at the same time that she was tending the light. She had three children, Mabel, Jessie Olga, and Charles. Emma had come across an old black and white photo of Fanny and young Charles tending a flock of turkeys near the lighthouse. This made sense because the family had been responsible for their own provisioning. It was either a long 14-mile drive or an 8-mile boat ride across the Chesapeake to the nearest town. Furthermore, Unloading supplies from a boat meant traversing a stairway with 137 steps down to a floating dock, and then hauling heavy items up with a windlass and winch. Because of this, it's not surprising the family maintained a garden and a variety of livestock to sustain them on the property. Fanny had to keep up all of the day-to-day responsibilities of any light keeper. Before the light was electrified in 1943, she had to replenish the oil in the lamps and trim the wicks. In one instance, the fog bell mechanism failed and she had to climb up to the 1,200-pound fog bell and manually strike it with the 50-pound clapper four times a minute for almost an hour. While that was happening, she missed a call from her son-in-law announcing the birth of her granddaughter. Emma smiled at the thought of Fanny being such a fit granny. Nonetheless, she said, I was never more exhausted in my whole life. And Emma could believe it. Fanny faithfully kept up this difficult job for 22 years, retiring at age 65 in 1947. When asked about her role at the lighthouse, she famously said, Oh, it was an easy-like chore, but my feet got tired, and climbing the tower has given me fallen arches. Upon her departure, Fanny was the last serving civilian female lightkeeper in the United States. Thanks to her and to the three capable women who served before her, 
Washingtonian magazine once referred to Turkey Point Light as the feminist lighthouse of the Chesapeake. Much like Catherine, Fanny never lost her interest in her beloved station. She retired just six miles away, where she could still see its stalwart beam in the darkness of the night. Emma paused and made some notes to herself. Then, with a sense of anticipation, she set her pages aside and reached for her dinner. As she savoured the cheesy pasta, she gazed idly at the dancing flames in her hearth. It was reaching that sleepy time of the evening when relaxation took over and her mind was beginning to wonder. The fire made her think of the ceaseless task of tending the wicks and the flames in the lighthouse beacons prior to electricity. Whether male or female, all lightkeepers had taken on demanding responsibilities. She did not think she could have done it. Decadently taking the last bites of her delicious mac and cheese, Emma once again rose from her chair and washed her dishes. The kitchen was noticeably chillier now, being near the window and the cottage door. She grabbed a sweater off the back of a nearby chair and slipped it on. Then she took her cheerful red kettle off the back burner, filled it and set it to boil. Having done this, she returned to her study spot and picked her notebook back up. Flipping a few more pages, she landed on the perfect next candidate for her presentation. It seemed impossible to do a talk like this without mentioning the woman who may have been the most famous lightkeeper in American history. I, Diwali Zoradia Lewis, generally called Ida, was the second of four children of Captain Hosea Lewis. Hosea was only the second lightkeeper at Lime Rock Light in Newport, Rhode Island, beginning in 1857. Having been just recently completed in 1854, Lime Rock was not a terribly isolated lighthouse. It was positioned on a ledge just 220 yards from shore. Still, it was an island, and anything the family needed had to be retrieved from the mainland by rowboat. Young Ida quickly became extremely proficient with that rowboat, and it was a good thing she did. Within four months of the family's arrival to live at the light station, Ida's father, Hosea, was disabled and could no longer work. Fifteen-year-old Ida stepped up to assist her mother in all the lightkeeper's duties and also helped care for her father and her chronically ill younger sister. On top of all of this, she rode her siblings to school in Newport every weekday. Known as one of the best swimmers in town, Ida was already being hailed as a hero by the age of 12. 
Even before moving to the lighthouse, Ida had saved four men using her rowboat when theirs had overturned. Then, when she was 27, Ida rushed out into icy waters without her shoes, joining with her brother to rescue two soldiers whose boat was capsized in a snowstorm. Saving the lives of those men earned her quite a bit of acclaim. One of the soldiers gave her a gold watch, and his fellows at Fort Adams collected $218 for her as thanks. Furthermore, she eventually became the only woman to be awarded the prestigious Gold Lifesaving Medal by the government in 1881. This recognition was due to her rescue of two additional Fort Adams soldiers she saved after they fell through the ice while walking on Newport Harbour. In 1877, Ida's mother fell ill, passing away the next year. Ida was appointed head lightkeeper in 1879 at a rate of $750 per year, making her the highest paid lightkeeper in the nation at the time. Emma's thoughts were interrupted by the friendly whistle of the tea kettle. She made her way to the counter and turned off the burner. Lifting the teapot, she poured the steaming water carefully over a mug containing a bag of peppermint tea. The window above the counter rattled briefly in the wind. Emma wrapped her sweater more tightly around her and carried the hot drink back to her seat by the fire. She blew on it lightly and set it down to steep. Then she returned to her notes. Ida never kept a logbook of her rescues, but the press stepped in to spread the word of them near and far. It was said that she saved 18 lives during her 54 years on the island. News of her great deeds spread in publications as popular as Harper's Weekly and the New York Tribune. Ida became a much-beloved public figure, eventually meeting admirals, presidents, and famous people such as feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Ida made her last recorded rescue at the age of 63, when a visiting friend accidentally overturned her own rowboat. By the time Ida was 64, she was a beneficiary of the Carnegie Hero Fund, receiving a $30 stipend each month. The great lady of the Lime Point Light passed away in 1911 at the age of 69. Bells tolled, flags flew at half-mast, and 1,400 people attended her funeral. She would no doubt have been very proud to see the station renamed to Ida Lewis Rocklight. An honour never before paid to a lightkeeper in the United States. There have even been songs written about her. In 
Emma sat her notebook down and picked up her tea, blowing on it lightly. She turned and gazed at the kitchen window again. It was dark outside now, but she could hear the cold rain lashing against it. Occasionally, a gust of wind would create an especially loud patter as fat drops of water hit the glass. She imagined how it must have felt for any keeper to spend countless dark nights on their own, carrying out their duties in the worst weather. As she relished being in her snug hideaway by the fire, Emma realised that she knew who her fourth and last female lighthouse hero would have to be. Going back to her greatest area of interest in Maine, she opened her notebook to the pages of our teenage lighthouse hero, Abby Burgess. Abby had moved to the very isolated lighthouse on Motinicus Rock with her family in 1853. She was the fourth of nine children of lightkeeper Samuel Burgess and his wife, whose name was Thankful. Abby's sources had referred to this rock as one of the most remote locations for a beacon on the eastern shoreline. It was six miles from Matinicus Island, and the nearest place where her family could get supplies was the city Rockland, which was 23 miles away by boat. Abby's brother, Benji, was not interested in lightkeeping and preferred to work on fishing vessels. Meanwhile, in order to increase their income, her father Samuel also spent time catching fish and lobster that he sold in Rockland. As a result, Abby took over many of her father's light-keeping duties at the young age of 15. She did this while caring for her three younger sisters and her mother, who was chronically ill. Abby's job as assistant light keeper was made even more difficult by the lard lamps she had to manage. The New England Historical Society quoted her as saying, Sometimes they would not burn so well when first lighted, especially in cold weather when the oil got cold. Then, some nights I could not sleep a wink all night, and many nights I have watched the light my part of the night, thinking nervously, what might happen should the light fail? Nonetheless, she kept at it faithfully. She added, In all these years, I always put the lamps in order and I lit them at sunset. Despite the heavy burden she bore at a tender age, Abby found time to read the passkeeper's logs, which detailed damaging storms. Upon reading about one that had destroyed the lighthouse entirely, she began to worry that the keeper's house was not sturdy enough. She moved her mother's bedroom to what she considered to be the strongest part of the structure. This proved to be an important consideration that saved Thankful a short time later. In January of 1856, Samuel became worried. 
the usual supply ship that came twice a year had not been able to make the journey in the autumn due to bad weather. Out of concern for the winter supplies of both food and lighthouse fuel, he told Abby to mind the lighthouse while he travelled to Rockland. Abby's brother Benji was away on a fishing expedition, so she was left with her sisters, her mother, and the responsibility to keep the beacon lit. Shortly after Samuel's departure, a tremendous gale hit. For three days, it lashed the island, damaging the portion of the keeper's house where Abby's mother had formerly slept. The storm continued relentlessly for three days. Eventually, flooding the island knee-deep in icy waters. Abby was forced to relocate her family to the second floor of the North Lighthouse Tower in order to keep them safe. Over her mother's objections, she took advantage of a lull in the storm to wade out to the chicken coop. Incredibly, she was able to save all but one of her chickens, bringing the rest to safety in the lighthouse. Before the storm was over, a huge wave had completely destroyed the keeper's house. It turned out to be one of New England's most legendary storms, and Samuel was not able to make it back to the island until four weeks had elapsed. During this entire time, Abby managed to keep the lights operational, no doubt saving countless mariners from crashing into Martinicus Rock. Thanks to her chickens, she was able to keep her family fed on a cup of cornmeal and one egg per day. According to the Historical Society, 17-year-old Abby had this to say about the ordeal. For some reason, I know not why, I had no misgivings and went on with my work as usual. For four weeks, owing to rough weather, no landing could be affected on the rock. During this time, we were without the assistance of any male member of our family, though at times greatly exhausted by my labours. Not once did the lights fail. Under God, I was able to perform all my accustomed duties as well as my father's. Emma paused and took another sip of her tea. Then she turned the page in her notebook and continued. In contrast to the famous deeds of Ida Lewis, Abby's heroism remained unsung at the time. In 1861, her father was replaced as keeper by President Lincoln, as he had not supported Lincoln, and light keepers were political appointees. Abby, however, had grown attached to the windswept island and asked if she could stay behind to train the new keeper, Captain John Grant. As it happened, she eventually fell in love with Grant's son, Isaac, and the two married and served as assistant lightkeepers there together. 
Abby and Isaac continued on Matinicus Rock for 14 years, raising four children together. In 1875, Abby left the island after 22 years in residence. Abby and Isaac were appointed as keepers at St. George's Whitehead Light, where they continued for another 15 years before retiring. Abby's last letter spoke of how she often dreamed of the lamps at Martinicus Rock. She said, I wonder if the care of the lighthouse will follow my soul. This last bit made Emma pause and reflect upon all these women. They all seemed to have an unshakable certainty that the light was a calling they must fulfill. They had come to this challenging and isolated life in different ways, but they had all lived it similarly with unfailing devotion. Very often, their only thanks had been the knowledge that they had done their duty. Emma sighed and closed her books with satisfaction. She felt ready to share these stories. Glancing lazily sideways, She noticed her mug was empty. At that moment, she realized how very tired she had gotten. Like Abby's four-day tempest, the March winds continued to rattle the small window in the kitchen. Mother Nature seemed to be telling her that it was time to take refuge in her bed. Setting aside her papers and books, Emma stood and stretched. She picked up the empty cup and walked it into the kitchen, setting it carefully in the sink. Tidying her book bag for the morning, She then switched off the flame in the fireplace and left the sitting room behind in darkness for the night. Her soft bed was waiting for her, tucked up in the corner and piled high with its fluffy comforter. Emma sat down on the edge of the bed pulled off her socks and slid her feet deep under the covers, reaching her toes down to where the sheet was tucked into the mattress. Pulling the duvet up around her chin, she rolled over and turned off her bedside lamp. The golden pool of light vanished and she lay in the dark listening to the steady patter of the early March rain on the roof yawning she sank more deeply into her pillows listening to the rhythm of the storm As she closed her eyes, her mind drifted. She imagined herself high up in a tower that stood on a remote island, expertly trimming a wick and lighting a lamp. Far from feeling alone, though, she felt safe. 
surrounded by the waves of the ocean and the sound of the storm. She understood that she was the one sure thing that created light in the darkness. She knew she was the one who would be steadfast through the upcoming night.